You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Transplantation, produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, covering current issues and practices in transplant medicine. IU Health, discover the strength of a leading national transplant center. Your host is Dr. Aaron Carroll, Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Director of the Center for Health Policy and Professionalism Research, and Associate Director of Children's Health Services Research at Indiana University School of Medicine. The limited availability of human organs and tissue has increasingly led to implantation of living cells from other species. When human donors are not available, when a bridge organ is needed, or when animal cells may provide a unique benefit to patients. This is called xenotransplantation. Joining us today are two experts in this area, Dr. Paul Health, Director of the Charles Warren Fairbanks Center for Medical Ethics and an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology Oncology at the Indiana University School of Medicine, and Dr. Joseph Tector, Associate Professor of Surgery and Chief of the Section of Transplant Surgery at Indiana University School of Medicine. Doctors, welcome to the program. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you. Let's start with Dr. Tector. When was the first xenotransplantation performed? Can you give us some of the history of the procedure? Sure. The first xenotransplantation performed for salad organs was in the early 1900s, and it was a kidney transplant, which functioned for a very, very short period of time. The modern history of xenotransplantation starts in about 1984 when baby Faye received a baboon heart. She lived about three weeks. And so initially when things were going, it sounds like people would survive for a short period of time. At what point did xenotransplants start to last for what we would consider a, a reasonable amount of time? And what would be a reasonable amount of time? The important thing is you have to be able to offer somebody, a patient, a chance to benefit from a xenograft. And so what's a reasonable amount of time? It depends on what the goal is. If it's a solid organ transplant, uh, right now for hearts and kidneys, you'd have to be able to survive a year or more. For livers, you could use it as a bridge to transplant, and then that period of survival could be days until you could get transplanted with a human liver once that became available. And so what were the first organs to be xenotransplanted, and today what, what are organs that are as well? In modern xenotransplantation history, Keith Reitzma, when he was at Tulane University in the 1960s, did a series of chimpanzee kidneys. And actually he had one patient who survived uh, nine months. She was a school teacher, and she actually went back to work. And she ended up dying from an infection, not from xenograft rejection. So it's been a while that it's been possible. And so what organs today are able to be xenotransplanted? Right now, none of them, but we're making progress. So the issue is, is what organs or what species animal you're going to use. And if you're going to use those are chimpanzee or primate organs, and, and there are issues with primate organs. So you know, one of them being there's, there are ethical considerations. There's also the fact that primates just are not plentiful enough to ever really solve the organ shortage. So if you're going to use pigs, uh, there's still some work to be done, and we're making progress in that area. Can we talk a bit about some of the current organ donor statistics? For instance, what's the number of Americans currently waiting for an organ transplant, Dr. Tector? Sure. Right now in the United States, there are more than 110,000 people waiting for solid organ transplants. And I think since the year 2000, more than 50,000 people have died waiting for solid organ transplants. So obviously there's a need to look at other resources for things like xenotransplantation. What would be the advantages of doing it from an animal? 
other than a human. There's a number of advantages. One of them is that you would have an unlimited source of organs. And so that would allow not just the 100,000 people that are currently waiting, but all of the people who could benefit from xenotransplantation but are deemed either too sick, too old, to have other pre-existing conditions, they could benefit from the miracle of transplantation. The other issues, you could genetically engineer these animals to minimize the immunosuppressive burden. That seems to be a very large potential benefit if we make enough progress. Well, obviously, there are some benefits, but there must be some disadvantages as well. Could you talk about some of those for us? Sure. Right now, there are a number of barriers, and one of the barriers is that the human immune system recognizes the pig organ as foreign, and it rejects the organ very quickly. So that's one barrier that we have to overcome. There's some physiologic barriers. There are some parts of pig organs that don't function physiologically well with humans. And again, we believe that through genetic engineering, we can overcome those barriers. And so what work is being done currently to try to get at some of those barriers? For about the last 10 years, people have been able to clone pigs and and make genetic modifications like they do for mice. So it's a new science, but so we've identified some antigens or proteins on the surface of the pig cell that the human immune system has antibodies to, and so we've been able to knock out the sugar that causes that, the antibody, about 90% of the antibodies that you and I have against pigs are against a single sugar, and we've knocked out the enzyme or the protein that makes that sugar, so that 90% of the antibodies have left the equation. But there's still 10% of these antibodies that remain, and so we're making progress. We have a pig that we're working on that we expect to have later this year or early next year that will take out about 15, 20% more of those antibodies. And once you identify, say, you have a pig, is it then something you distribute nationally, or is it something that people try to get a hold of and then try to breed themselves? How does that actually work? That's going to be a very good question. That The answer to that is not known yet. But before you can just distribute the pig, we're going to have to test it. And so the initial trials for xenotransplantation are going to be carefully planned. There's going to be a lot of safeguards that have to go into it, and it's probably going to happen at a very, very few medical centers. And then once, if we get to a point where we can say that it's safe and it can be released to the masses, then we'll have to figure out sort of a pig distribution plan. Do you worry about infection or anything about perhaps what could happen to the pigs or zoonotic infections as they might be So, well, zoonotic infection is the risk that you'll introduce a pig pathogen or pig infection into the human population. And so there's been a lot of discussion about that. And so we have a group, our viral advisory board, which is actually a panel of experts throughout the United States that represent the CDC, they represent the Global Viral Forecasting Initiative, and the retrovirology, some of the major retrovirology labs in this country. And so we've been looking into what the risks are. And quite frankly, with all of the exposure that humans have to pigs, this group has been going through that and cataloging what's happened. And so right now, we actually think that the risk is much smaller than it was initially thought to be. I mean, it sounds like some of this requires so much research and is such an early stage. How do you actually do that? I mean, how do you determine when you want to actually put an organ from a pig into a human being to see if it's going to work. So we've actually put a great deal of thought into what would be the first organ to try. And so we've decided that it's going to be a liver transplant. And we would use it as what we call a bridge to transplant. And so we would take somebody who needed a liver transplant and it was dying imminently. 
and there's no human organ available. So we would put the pig liver into them and just keep them alive long enough to be able to get a human organ. And then we could take the organ out, we could study it, we could figure out what happens in the interim and make improvements. And then gradually leave the organ in longer and longer. And if we got to the point of where we could get long-term survival, then you could start applying some of the advances we made with the liver to the other organs. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Carroll. Joining me today are Drs. Joseph Tector and Paul Helft. This is the first of a two-part series on xenotransplantation. I'd like to even continue a bit more on sort of how the research is going. How close do you think you are to the point at which you would want to put a pig liver into a human being? That's a tough question. We're a lot closer than we were, but we're not there yet. And so I think we're going to have to see what happens when we get our next series. We have two or three genetic modifications that we're working on, and we'll have to see exactly how the human immune system reacts to the next couple modifications. If there's a big improvement, then we might be very, very close. But if it doesn't have a big improvement, then we're going to have to do more research. How do you go about checking to see how the human immune system reacts to those genetic modifications? You can take cells from the pig and you can study them in, in a dish with human cells and see if the cells attack the pig cells. We can take the organ and we can put it in a box where we pump blood through it and we can take a look at that. Those are probably going to be the first two initial screening methods. Once we get to a point where in a box, in a dish, the cells aren't being attacked vigorously, then we would have to look for other alternatives. Let's talk somewhat about the program structure for xenotransplantation. Can you walk me through how each of these different parts plays a role in, in how you're going about it? I think we've talked about some of the pig cloning and genetic engineering, but how about xenoimmunology? Sure. So it's a multidisciplinary project, and so we have a number of arms. We've talked about the genetic engineering and the pig cloning piece. We have an immunology slash physiology group that studies what it is on the pig cell that the human immune system attacks, and they identify the targets that the genetic engineers go after. So that's we have that group. We have a preclinical testing team, which is essentially our clinical transplant team. We've got the ethics, the people from Fairbanks working on the ethical issues. We have a viral advisory board. And then we have people that have looked into some of the community relations and some of the public concerns. So that's the core of our Xenograph project. And how common are these types of programs? Obviously, there's one here at IU, but are there many nationally or are there only a few? There are probably four or five. And where are the other ones? The Mayo Clinic has one. Harvard has one, and the University of Pittsburgh has one, and, and Emory. And is this something that's also being worked on internationally, or is this very much the United States? It's absolutely being worked on throughout the world. And are pigs sort of the focus of yes. where everybody seems to be moving? Absolutely. So pigs breed easily. You know, we use more than 100 million for food consumption in the United States alone each year. They are also able to be genetically modified, which is uh, another big advantage. Their genome is completely sequenced. They come in all sizes, and they really grow quickly so that you can go from not having an organ to having an organ in a matter of months. And obviously, organ size then is comparable to that of a human being? From the smallest to the largest, yes. It's very impressive. Okay, so now we have an identified patient. Let's say we've worked through xenotransplantation and it works. What is the clinical plan? How does one go about doing a xenotransplantation? 
So xenotransplantation, if it's working, would not be a lot different than human organ transplantation, with the exception that you could plan the transplants. So currently with human transplantation, we have to wait for someone to die, then they have to allocate the organs, the heart, the lungs. You have to fly to a place to get the organs. And we could eliminate most of those situations and schedule the transplants. Do you imagine that human transplantation would disappear, that it would be completely replaced someday by xenotransplants? I doubt it, but I could see where there would be situations where you'd be better suited for a genetically engineered organ than, than you would a human organ. If I could make a comment, this is Paul Helft. It's important to note, as Dr. Tector did earlier, that many people who are waiting for organs die waiting on a list. And they die for many reasons. Often those are related to their organ failure, their primary organ failure or complications thereof. And in a sense, the system as it currently exists depends on the enormous you know, uncertainty of a person who was an organ donor perhaps as designated on their driver's license or their family decides to give the gift. That comes into the system at a random time. And so in a sense, these transplants are performed at random times. You will do them day and night no matter what. What would be nice would be able to take a person who, say, wasn't on death's doorstep and put an organ into them electively before they get so sick that the complication rate is higher and that the outcomes are worse. So I think one of the things, one of the great hopes for xenotransplantation is it would turn what is now a, really a it's a beautiful system, but it's a very chaotic and unpredictable system into a system that involves a great deal more predictability. This is Dr. Tucker. That's a great point. So it sounds like we're all working on pig livers. Will it be much of a big step to move to other organs in pigs if you conquer and solve the liver problem? Or is it going to be this kind of steep hill every single time? You would think that any of the advances made for the liver would be applicable to the other organs. So my best guess is it will not be a big leap. What organ do you think would be next? I would think kidneys would be a good candidate because 80,000 of the 110,000 people waiting need kidney transplants. So I'm hoping it's going to be kidneys because there are just so many people out there suffering and waiting. Any final thoughts on what we've talked about, perhaps where you think things are heading in the future and, and what we're likely to see in the next few years? I'm hopeful that we can get to a point of where we can offer pig livers as a bridge to transplant in the next few years, but we still have some miles to move in the lab before we can offer that. Dr. Stector and Dr. Health, unfortunately we're out of time, but this is the first in a two-part series on xenotransplantation. Doctors, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Advances in Transplantation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This program is produced in cooperation with Indiana University Health, the strength of a leading national transplant center. Discover the strength at iuhealth.org forward slash transplant. To find more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.